Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As promised, the United States withdrew from Afghanistan on August 31 with Major General Chris Donahue, the 82nd Airborne Division Commander, the last American soldier out of Kabul, as Washington and its allies prepare to work with the Taliban to fight terror groups in the country and grant aid in exchange for a more inclusive government. The markup process is well underway, and President Biden and Democrat spending agenda has been imperiled, and the January 6th Commission is underway. All this Uh, as a surging Delta variant fueled by vaccine skeptics and mask opponents is back killing nearly 3,000 Americans yesterday alone, which in turn is having implications for the economy, with new hiring dipping this month to under 250,000. All of this as climate disasters sweep the nation from devastating wildfires in California and the Pacific Northwest, water restrictions along the Colorado River, and Hurricane Ida's swath of destruction from the Gulf Coast, to the Northeastern United States. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Gordon Adams, American University Professor Emeritus and Quincy Institute Fellow, who served as the Defense Budget Chief in the Office of Management and Budget during the Clinton administration, Mackenzie Eaglin of the American Enterprise Institute, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many hats is affiliated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Everybody, welcome back. Gordon in particular, uh, welcome back uh, to the team. Uh, The band is back together again, as we would say. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our weekly Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep, deep dive uh, into naval issues. Our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine, sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent sea airspace conference and trade show. Welcome all again, Michael. Uh, give us a rundown. A lot going on up on the Hill. Obviously, you've got the January 6th Commission, which is uh, up and underway with Liz Cheney as the vice chairman of that democratically uh, led um, committee. Uh, we have the House Armed Services Committee uh, passing almost unanimously 57 to 2, uh, the markup. And then, of course, we have the president's infrastructure measure. But bring us, start us off with the infrastructure and where we stand with it, because Joe Manchin, as we expected, has put a pause on the $3.5 trillion Democratic uh, spending initiative. Yes. So I didn't think there'd be much to talk about uh, in regards to infrastructure this week, but uh, actually there is, and and none of it's good. Uh, So uh, first, you know, Pelosi has given um, her team in the House a very, very short timeline to put this bill together. I mean, they're really scrambling behind the scenes to, to settle policy disputes that could take normally months or years uh, to, to resolve. And I, uh, as I mentioned last week, I didn't think that they would make that timeline. And just one example is the current fight over the uh, health care provisions. I mean, Pelosi and the House want to spend money on uh, protecting and expanding the Affordable Care Act, while the Senate wants to spend money on expanding Medicare. And there's not money to go around to do both. So that's just one of many disputes that will not be settled uh, in accordance with the timeline. Now, as you just correctly pointed out, uh, Senator Manchin yesterday came out with an editorial in the Wall Street Journal uh, that had a really important subheading that said, you know, amid inflation, debt, and the inevitability of future crises, Congress needs to take a strategic pause on the reconciliation bill. Now, what that really means is unclear, but he's trying to pump the brakes. Uh, and in many respects, I think he's doing them all a favor because there's no way, as I said last week, that they would meet, uh, get this done uh, in September. But that is you know, sparking some rebukes, for, for example, from people like uh, Casio-Cortez, who tweeted out that she is sick of this uh, bipartisan corruption that masquerades as a clear-eyed moderation. And you know, I think you probably saw this morning, to make matters worse, the jobs numbers uh, were extremely disappointing. And I think that will put more pressure on Pelosi to hold to her agreement with the moderates that she is going to vote on the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill uh, by September 27th. And that, remember, the, the name of that bill was the American Jobs Act. That is a bill that could arguably create jobs, whereas I think the $3.5 trillion bill uh, is, is not really being sold as a job creator. And again, $3.5 trillion is not going to be the number. And they're trying to pre-conference 
this bill ahead of time. They want to pass a bill out of the House that they know is going to pass the Senate. They can't even agree on the number, let alone what's going to be in it and also how it's going to be paid for. So this uh, continues to be an absolute train wreck. Um, now, on the good news side, uh, as you pointed out, uh, the NDA markup was completed in the wee hours of Thursday morning and passed with an overwhelmingly uh, bipartisan vote of 57 to 2. Uh, and the only reason um, that the two Democrats who voted against the bill, uh, Congressman Ro Khanna from California and Congressman Sarah Jacobs from California, was really a protest uh, because of an amendment that passed that would add $25 billion in uh, defense spending to the bill, which brings the number up to 740 billion. Uh, and that bill and that amendment, which was offered by Mike Rogers, also passed with a strong bipartisan uh, vote of 42 uh, to 17. And you know, that, that bill, you know, that, that, that amendment will add uh, almost $10 billion for weapons procurement. It's gonna add about uh, just over $5 billion for R&D, over $4 billion for cyber and innovation. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, I think uh, the brilliant Mackenzie Eaglin can dive deeper into things that that um, amendment does. But, you know, it was very significant and it puts them in line with what the Senate did by adding $25 billion uh, to their bill. And it shows that there's strong bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate to increase uh, defense spending. Now, in addition to that amendment, there were over 800 other amendments uh, that the committee had to consider, which is why the markup didn't finish until about 2.30 in the morning. Uh, now, many of those amendments were withdrawn or consolidated, but there are a few uh, that are important to, to mention that are significant. One is uh, they did adopt uh, an amendment that would require women to register for the draft. So that mirrors what's in the Senate bill, so that's likely now to become law. Uh, there was an amendment that would block states from using private funds to pay for National Guard deployments, because we saw earlier this year that South Dakota's governor accepted donations to send uh, troops to the border. Uh, there was an amendment that would increase the period of time for officers um, that, uh, to, to be out of uniform before serving as Secretary of Defense from seven years to 10 years, and a waiver would require three quarters of majority in Congress. Right. Um, there were uh, you know, some tense debates over critical race theory uh, and extremism. Uh, the critical race theory uh, amendments were all defeated. Uh, and, but there was an amendment on uh, counter-extremism that was adopted that would create an office of counter-extremism in the Pentagon uh, and then rely on the Secretary of Defense to define what extremism means. And then there were a lot of amendments on Afghanistan. There were 17 total, uh, 11 of which uh, passed. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think many of them were bipartisan. I mean, Vicki Hartzler uh, offered two amendments that passed um, with every, every member voting form, which would require the Pentagon to report to the committee uh, that why it left Bagram Air Force Base, why it ended uh, maintenance support uh, for the Afghan Air Force. Uh, Jason Crow, Democrat, also had an amendment uh, requiring certain briefings uh, to Congress uh, over uh, twice a year on counterterrorism operations, retrieving U.S. citizens, uh, the growing threat in Afghanistan. So, you know, there were some contentious ones uh, that were defeated. I mean, there was an amendment that would have a sense of Congress that uh, they've lost confidence in Biden as commander in chief. Of course, that one uh, was defeated. So uh, all in all, you know, I think that Chairman Smith uh, and Mayor Rogers did a very good job of uh, managing uh, this markup. Things really could have gotten heated and out of hand. They did a really good job of controlling their folks. And, you know, when it came to Afghanistan, I think Smith was started out the conversation saying, you know, you really got to take the full 20 years into consideration and not just the last four months. And I think that he, he was right in, in doing that. I, I would just point out there was a little bit of cynicism in this. I mean, I was talking to a Republican friend who was uh, pointing out uh, the the jobs numbers uh, somewhat, uh, you know, pointing to the jobs numbers and the fact that the economy would cool down. Uh, I counter observed that, unfortunately, it's been too many voices on the right that have been pushing against vaccine mandates and masks. Uh, and there was almost like a wink and a, a nod. It's like, yeah, well, successful strategy is successful strategy, right? I mean, at the end of the day, th this will reflect badly on, on Biden. So, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but there is a very unfortunate political uh, dimension uh, to, to that uh, as, as well that's, uh, that's uh, sadly been uh, uh, surfacing. Talk to us a little bit about the January 6th commission. Sure. Uh, so as you pointed out, uh, Liz Cheney has been named uh, the vice chair of that panel. And again, it's not unusual for a select panel or select committee to have a vice chair from, from the other party. Uh, but that has sparked some outrage now uh, from many Republican members of Congress. Uh, the Freedom Caucus apparently is now sending a letter to um, Kevin McCarthy demanding that both Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger get kicked out of the GOP conference. Uh, and several members of the Freedom Caucus have been uh, tweeting about that. Uh, and just before that, I think we saw, you know, the, the committee has been asking for an enormous amount of information and records from the, from the former Trump White House and from the campaign. Uh, and 
uh, now they've asked uh, the telecom companies to uh, hold on to records that they may want to uh, subpoena uh, you know, communications between members of Congress uh, and possible uh, people who are involved in the insurrection. And that has sparked uh, Kevin McCarthy <clears throat> to come out and, and threaten uh, these companies, saying that they'd be violating the law, although it's not clear what law they would be violating, and said that the GOP majority, you know, implying that when they come back into power in 2022, if they do, which I think is likely, that they will not forget and that they will stand with the Americans and hold these companies fully accountable under the law. So, you know, look, hang, hang on a second. I'm having a problem with the trouble and the logic on this. If if you're you know, there was concern that there was insider participation in this insurrection, this uh, investigation was designed in a bipartisan manner to get to the bottom of it until Republicans at the last second said they didn't want to play in this, in part because of the suspicion that too many people will be implicated and caught out red handed. Right. So it's better to sort of say this investigation should go nowhere. I mean, thou dost protest too much. I mean, you're you're almost and, and you're going to punish companies for participating in uh, an investigation that everybody wants to figure out what happened. And if there was insider participation to censure and to sanction those members that held at risk America's legislature. Right. Look, uh, uh, you're correct. And I think it, it's congressional committees routinely subpoena data from private companies. So it's not out of the ordinary. What is out of the ordinary is uh, that this, the information they're subpoenaing deals with members of Congress. Uh, and, you know, when McCarthy made this statement, uh, and I'm, again, I'm not defending it, right? But when McCarthy made the statement, it wasn't clear whether his phone records were ones that they were after. But now over the last uh, day and a half, it's become clear right. that the committee does want uh, McCarthy's phone records, in addition to several others, and I think it sparked a sense of you know fear and concern among uh, some of these members. And, and I think some of the members that they're looking at, um, you know, people like Lauren Boebert and some of the radical members of the conference, you know, these are ones that were um, accused of you know providing es- you know uh, tours for um, some of the insurrections prior to the insurrection. Now, did that happen? Did not happen? Who knows? But that's the purpose of this panel is to find out what did and what what didn't happen. So. This is going to provide a lot of drama, you know, in the background amidst all the other things we talked about that are going to be happening in September. Um, I uh, want to point out that Benny Thompson, obviously, is the is the chair uh, of that panel. Uh, Mackenzie, let me bring you into the conversation. What are the things and then uh, Gordon and Dove to get your guys sense on what jumped out at you uh, in in all of this? But especially uh, now that we're in uh, markup uh, uh, season. Right. I mean, uh, Mike Rogers has pushed a $25 billion increase, and obviously the same thing happened on the Senate side, so there is much uh, re- rejoicing, even though the mark was to uh, $704 billion, uh, which was the administration's request. Mackenzie, why don't you start us off? The committees of jurisdiction are obviously more favorable to defense, generally speaking, than the wider conferences. But what we do know over the past year of data is that there are more votes in Congress to increase defense than to cut it period, full stop. While Hask and Sass are generally going to have stronger bipartisan votes in that regard, more than the wider House and Senate, it, it still remains the same. You know, we've seen votes on amendments like from Senator Bernie Sanders to cut the top line by 10%. So what we know for sure is Biden's defense top line will not be the final word when 22 is enacted into law. The, that's the big that's a big question mark, of course, when that could be, and it could easily be another six to nine months from now, and that might be a small, uh, a, a light touch window. I was also struck by the, you know, the numbers for the vote, you know, 14 Democrats joined in that vote uh, to support the Rogers Amendment, which isn't as strong as the Senate, but still, it's still pretty significant. What I liked was uh, Congresswoman Luria's criticism of the panel uh, for spending twice as much time debating critical race theory as they did the top line increase of 24 billion. I would share her her sentiments on that. Uh, but basically, where does this? Wh- what does it mean? Well, Congressman Rogers kind of framed it. If you're a cynic, you know, he said, "I'm funding 200 projects that members asked for." <laughs> so, like, that's just an automatic vote getter. But at the same time, those who voted for it said, "No, it really is about the threat." Again, here back to Luria said in one word, we can sum up the why, and that is China. And I do think members do believe they are acting in the best interest of the department. I would broadly characterize it as 
an effort in both chambers to plug the gap in procurement and readiness where the administration cut from previous you know plans just generally speaking there's money for lots of other things that michael talked about so i won't have to i won't reiterate that um i would just note a couple of additional items that are are interesting the navy is finally being allowed to move forward with some cruiser retirements and that's significant because it's usually the house that's the the holdout the senate's been more favorable to retirements and divestments in the services in recent years in the house and I, you know it's just it's past time right this there's just not enough money to that makes it worth keeping some of these cruisers given their age and then of course on nuclear weapons uh you know congressman cheney had an amendment that was adopted uh to block the reduction of deployed icbms below 400 uh, but they did reject another amendment from her on uh, a scheduled retirement for the gravity bond to, to delay that which they won't uh, there are various Buy America debates, some concern about Taiwan. And then, you know, um, the committee adopted two important commission, you know, large, large swaths of recommendations from two important commissions in my estimation. That would include the Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which saw a lot of their ideas make it into the mark, and the Commission on Military Aviation Safety, which I've been harping on in all of my writing the last year because it, it's not limited to aviation safety problems that we're seeing across the services, right? It's, it's vehicle training accidents, it's ship collisions, it's everything. So that's, I think, all really good news um, overall. I, you know, obviously to be determined on what survives the final mark, but overall a great mark markup. Uh, Gordon, let me bring you uh, into the conversation. Welcome uh, back uh, again. Uh, what are you seeing? What are the things that uh, jump out at you in this uh, legislative uh, uh, spurt uh, that we're having here? And what is the outlook for infrastructure given uh, that is a signature uh, uh, legislative priority for the president to try to push over the finish line while at the same time trying to turn the leaf from Afghanistan. We're going to talk a little bit more deeply about that because you've written very thoughtfully uh, as somebody who's been a consistent statecraft uh, advocate for many de- the, the entirety of my the three decades I've known you. But why don't we focus a little bit on, on uh, where we are on the congressional piece of it, and Dove would like to get your sense as well. I feel like I've come back from another planet intruding into a conversation that is still going on uh, and, and somewhat shocked. Uh, shocked, indeed shocked, to learn there's politics going on in this joint, meaning the Congress. Um, you know, it seems to me, it seems to me that uh, there's a sort of detachment from reality uh, to some aspects of the conversation. Uh, the, the reality was, you know, the, the pages were filled in the, in the newspapers the last couple of weeks, but especially the last couple of days with things like climate change and um you know, the future of democracy and what I call the Texas Taliban state, um, you know, the, the, the real dilemmas that confront the United States of America uh, are not really what the markup in the Senate or the House Armed Services Committee had much to do with. Uh, I know there was a lot of debate and discussion in the markup about the things that Michael talked about. Uh, but really, in reality, who we're talking about politics, I think, in the end. Uh, I do expect, as Mackenzie said, for there to be enough votes to increase the defense budget above what Biden requested. I frankly don't think that has a lot to do with reality. Some of the things that were put into the procurement markup in the edition have so little to do with China, it staggers me. Uh, but it doesn't really surprise me. Uh, this is a committee that is largely composed of people, not fully, but largely composed of people uh, who have interests in their states and districts that uh, are involved in the increases in readiness spending, the increases in procurement spending. And it's hardly surprising. They've only done that for, you know, 70 or 80 years. So there's no big surprise here in terms of the politics of this, Mark. Uh, the magic number, uh, $24 billion, is really, I think, about politics. It's about some members' desires to send signals either to China or to the administration uh, about where they are on defense. Uh, but it is a curious detachment from the reality that they have to deal with when it comes to uh, the whole skein of issues that are being discussed in the framework of the $3.5 trillion uh, Bernie Sanders uh, proposal budget resolution that still is in, in a very intense period of negotiations and markup. It doesn't even have much to do with the infrastructure that, uh, that Joe mentioned is, is still worrying about. I do think the infrastructure piece will go through in the end. I think that's gonna happen. 
because it's so much mutual partisan interest in uh, the pork, if you will, or the projects that are necessary and urgent in various people's districts. That's so I think that will that will happen. Uh, but what I found the whole thing curiously detached from reality, uh, that that larger reality that is the daily concern of most Americans, uh, which is not how much money is being spent on defense. Your, your sense on where we are and where we're going? Well, on defense, uh, I tend to find myself shockingly in agreement with Gordon. Um, I don't think the 25 billion was that big a deal. It's around. It's, it sounds crazy, but it is a rounding error for an administration that's got two bills that are four and a half trillion dollars. So 25 billion is really not not much money, and it it is a reaction to what is clearly an administration's uh, the administration's uh, inclination to downplay defense. But having said that. I think Gordon's right about the content. You know, if you look at, uh, and I've got a piece in the Hill about this today, if you wanted to spend 25 billion or so, then uh, what you should be doing is is focusing on cutting edge technologies that'll, or adding to them that'll keep us, or at least help us stay ahead of China and Russia. Uh, That's not really what's happening. Uh, What's happening is that you've seen more money for legacy programs on top of the $715 billion budget that also has tons of money for legacy programs. So, uh, you know, you've got to ask yourself, what's this really about? And I think Gordon's got the right answer there. It's interesting that if you look at Mike Rogers's uh, piece of paper that he issued about his uh, amendment, the words Pacific Deterrence Initiative and European Deterrence Initiative don't even appear. And that bothers me a lot. We've got a problem, whether you agree with what the president did or don't agree with what the president did, and we can talk about that later on Afghanistan. There's no question that the allies are really, really nervous about us. And so this would have been a great time to highlight how we're going to put more money in to deal with China and Russia, specifically to buttress uh, uh, the the nervousness or or solidify the nervousness of, of of our allies. We didn't do that. And to me, that's a major problem. If we think that our allies are confident in us right now, we're smoking something. And even if it's legal, we're still smoking it. Um, And why don't I just stop there? Amusingly uh, said, Dove, although uh, that's uh, not the first time that anybody in Washington would be uh, accused of being on either delusional or on a mind altering uh, uh, substance. Um, let me ask a climate related uh, question before b- before we move on. Um, there is a recognition now that climate change is, is serious and it's beginning to literally drown people in their basements, uh, certainly uh, in, in the Northeast, as we saw in New York and, and New Jersey, tra- tragic news, uh, devastating storm uh, that hit uh, New Orleans. And we're seeing the impacts of it uh, in on the West Coast, uh, in particular, with prolonged uh, droughts, um, fueling wildfires that are just simply extraordinary and now even threatening uh, Lake Tahoe, uh, having burned through many, many towns. There is a sense that the United States has to adjust to this, right? I mean, we, we have a tendency of sometimes forgetting the Arab Spring was driven by food insecurity and that was driven by climate change in turn. Turkey has dammed the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. That has downstream implications. And the water wars that we've been talking about may actually be happening in the future as, as global temperatures rise. This sea level rise means different infrastructure necessary at, at naval yards. We'll, we may need water barriers. Uh, anything that's in cold climates, permafrost is melting, uh, will have implications for radar installations, uh, air bases, and other uh, places, whether it's in Alaska or even in the high north, given that, that Canada is our closest ally in the defense of North America, uh, ultimately. Dove, why don't you start us off, right? Is the Pentagon going to get a lot of free money for this? There is no doubt that the national defense and national uh, security strategies will include the importance of climate. Ultimately, the military has been looking at this and the bill just for Norfolk years ago, which is already having bad flooding uh, instances, is um, was was a multi-billion dollar tap. Are they going to get free money for this or does this come out of the budget and in turn leave us with smaller uh, forces ultimately. Mackenzie, why don't you start us off because you're on the shortest uh, leash. You've got to jump off here in a minute. Go ahead. 
Right. And you've touched on the sort of the emergency money that we have to pour in after major events that strike major weather events that hit military bases all over the world, uh, but obviously from the west to the east coast. And this is going to keep happening. And as you also rightly said, it's getting more expensive. But beyond that, to your point, Vago, I look at the totality of sort of Pentagon real estate domestically, which, of course, is vast in its reach and, and, and scope and breadth and across states. And but really, the challenge here isn't just plugging the gaps and trying to prop up old old places, but the sheer mammoth size, the Pentagon's unfunded uh, maintenance and repair bills for facilities specifically is astounding. It is over $130 billion of backlog repairs. Everything from um, shipyards and uh, army depots to, you know, hangars at Langley. And, you know, we're using uh, World War II hangars for fifth generation fire jets. That doesn't work. That's just stupid. I mean, it, it actually wastes money because the layouts don't work. And so everything takes longer. And when it takes longer, what does it do? It costs more. People get hurt. Parts go missing. Things break more often. You end up uh, in, in hangar bays uh, that the Commission on Sa Aviation Safety wrote about when only eight, when there's eight bays at Oceana and only two doors open. The Marine maintainers spend most of their day towing airplanes, not fixing airplanes. They're towing them to the door that works. I mean, this is just, these are just like small examples, but it's, it's really a shocking problem. And it's the easy you know, pot of money to raise, facilities, maintenance, restoration, you know, not just military construction, but this restoration and maintenance. You know, President Trump rated it for the border wall, and it's often the sort of forgotten stepchild, like, oh, money's tight, inflation's up, gas and fuel and beans and bullets cost more this year. Take it from the facilities to it and restoration. And it's, it's just a signal to me that defense leaders, if they're not focused on unsexy stuff like this, it's climate change and it's important, but it's also just unsexy to deal with, you know, old buildings, then they're not serious about fixing problems. Mackenzie, thanks very much for joining us. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks for making time for us today. I know how busy you are. Always my pleasure. Thanks to all of you. Dove, why don't we go to you, Gordon to you, and then, and then Michael to you, because I know that uh, lawmakers are, are talking about this, including lawmakers who have been, uh, let's say, reluctant on climate change, uh, but are now recognizing that, hey, it's it's here uh, and, and we're going to have to cope with it. Go ahead, Dove, Gordon, and then Michael. Well, again, if you look at that $24, 25000000000 billion add-on, how much of it was for the kinds of things Mackenzie was talking about? Not very much. Uh, and BMAR, the, the, the sort of acronym for <laughs> a Backlog of Maintenance and Repair, has always been an orphan child. It's actually been a funder of other things. Uh, you, you really have to differentiate between the larger climate change issue, which, you know, reasonable people can differ about that. I mean, climate change is a global problem, and we don't see the Chinese or the Indians or a lot of other countries doing very much about it. Um, but if you're talking about the impact of climate change on our national security, the defense capabilities, that's something that's not doesn't depend on China or India. It depends on us. And we're simply not spending the money. Uh, $130 billion? Let's find $13 billion. Let's find 10% of that. And some of the climate change money that is being spent isn't really being spent on infrastructure improvements either. So you've got a double problem here. You've got a problem that we are not separating out what climate change does to, the, to our defense infrastructure, as opposed to the larger issue of climate change. And secondly, what we are actually spending on that infrastructure and on the backlog, uh, particularly, obviously, the repair backlog, not maintenance, but it's maintenance as well, obviously, uh, to get us back, to, to keep us operating in a way that we need to. The, the examples that Mackenzie talked about are operational examples when you come down to it. So uh, there's a huge gap here. And yes, there's some lip service to this. And there's some groups involved in pushing this. But I don't see a major effort either by the Congress or by the DOD to really do something about it in a serious way. Gordon? Yeah, I uh, hate to be in violent agreement with my friend and colleague Dove Zakheim again. <laughs> but here we are. 
that's okay. Uh, this is a safe space. You two can agree with each other because, frankly, I've known you both forever, and you actually agree more than you disagree. And when okay. you do, no, disagree, I don't agree with that. I think we disagree more than we agree. <laughs> I, I, I think we disagree a lot, but that's that's neither here nor there. On this point, we clearly have a mind meld. Uh, Dove saw this problem as comptroller. I saw this problem when I was doing the defense budget at OMB. Uh, real property maintenance, as we called it then, BMAR. Uh, has is perpetually in backlog. It has probably been in backlog for 80 years. For, so f- for Mackenzie to call it this sort of uh, like a, to describe it as a sudden apparition of a huge problem. No, it's always been a pay for candidate for everybody else. It's always been short shirted by budget planning and the services. It's not sexy. It's not trendy. Add to it, which Dove didn't mention, we have still have enormous excess capacity. Some of that RPM stuff is stuff that we're not going to fix not now, not ever, because it's excess capacity. So it's it's a it's an interesting but very long-standing problem in, in military service planning, and, and everybody knows it. So there's nothing new here. The readiness of the forces is not directly impacted. The big question uh, which we're talking about is climate change uh, and it you know it's again it's hard to say the most urgent climate change problem is the climate change adjustment to America's bases at home and overseas yes that is an issue yes the department should be putting more funding into that and yes magnify that by a thousand or ten thousand and you have the problem of the adjustment of the American infrastructure to the problems of climate change we see that everywhere I, you know, I, I lived in New York City for 20 years. My older, younger adult child lives in New Orleans and is currently evacuated to Birmingham. Uh, I grew up in California and spent multiple times at Tahoe. So every place right now that is in the front pages of the newspaper has touched where I have been and have family all the time. Uh, and I know how strapped all of them are to have the capacity to adjust to what is now an immediate and accurate problem for the infrastructure of the United States, which is just not built as the basements and subways of New York just showed for the kinds of climate disasters that we are now going to encounter and encounter quite regularly. So the infrastructure bill is needed. Uh, The social adjustment monies that are going into this bigger package that Bernie Sanders is talking about are needed. The Defense Department ought to be focused less on additional C-130s and more on this issue in American military operations and basing infrastructure. Uh, All of that is, is as urgent as any problem can be at the front of anyone's attention, that the Congress is not focused on that as a testimonial to our divided politics and, and the sort of cultish nature of some of those politics that gets in the way of doing any serious business on this crucial problem. Uh, Michael, is there any movement in terms of how lawmakers are beginning to look at this and the magnitude of the potential problem and what's needed to address it? Because ultimately, we do have a tendency of short sheeting it. This this isn't a black swan. It's again, I mean, not to overuse the black swan gray rhino analogy. This thing has been closing on us on, you know, constant bearing, decreasing range. I mean, that's what that's what causes collisions. So there's two reasons, or two main reasons why the defense appropriations bill has not been able to come to the floor for a vote in the House. One is the top line, uh, because it's got 25 billion less than Republicans want. But two, <clears throat> there's a lot of um, Republicans are upset with how much money is put into that bill to address climate change, and that it's scattered throughout the bill. And I think that the defense community needs to do a better job educating Republicans uh, on to where th- some of those arguments are correct and not correct and where this money is needed. Uh, I've heard it from you know, some of the shipyards, for example, and other companies that we do work with, uh, how these, the threat of climate change is, is affecting their business. But uh, I don't think there's enough of a reality uh, check yet uh, on the Hill and enough of acceptance. And uh, I think we'll get there, but the job of lobbyists is to inform and educate, and there's a lot more needs to be done. And frankly, I think even some of the associations that represent uh, the defense industry need to explain to both parties uh, why this is a threat to our national security and to our military as well. Uh, you've always been an educator, uh, Mike and, <laughs> and uh, Michael, and you do a terrific job doing it as well. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. 
Professor Herson uh, is, is in the house. Um, let's uh, shift to Afghanistan. And Gordon, let me uh, give you the, the microphone uh, here. Two very thoughtful pieces uh, on statecraft, I should say, for our audience. Uh, you were a skeptic about going to Afghanistan, and even then it was a well-defined mission that you were interested in. You have always consistently been an opponent uh, or, or skeptic when it comes to nation building and certainly uh, opposed um, the, the Iraq uh, uh, invasion and have noted that there is never really anything clean or tidy about wars, whether, and it's easier to get into them than it is to get out of them. Um, one of the things that, um, we've obviously seen is, um, the administration, uh, did get out. The American people support that. The question was how we got out. Uh, and I'm, I agree with you. I think it's overwrought. Uh, and I think we've all discussed this on this program. Uh, this notion that America won't be there for our allies and partners. We will be there for allies and partners. The whole question is, are we going to go uh, and, you know, it's not that we don't show up. It's just we show up and maybe do something uh, stupid. Um, you know, we should have seen the Taliban was coming back. The rate of their advances would have suggested it. Uh, and we did have a successful evacuation, even though there are people who are left behind. In fairness to the administration, the United States government reached out since March telling Americans who were there, you guys ought to be getting out uh, and, and not leave this uh, to, to, the, to the last minute. That said, any devotee of realpolitik should have seen the president's Tuesday address as music to their ears, right? Get involved only when U.S. national security interests are on the line and then have a clearly defined plan, objectives, and an, and an exit strategy. And we're going to have to end up working with the Taliban as we've been working with the Taliban since 2018, if I recall correctly, when we were negotiating our exit and, and they knew uh, that they were eventually going to get back into power. Talk to us a little bit about what the lessons are from your standpoint. Uh, of the past uh, two decades. And then Dove, uh, you did write a book about Iraq and Afghanistan, and I want to welcome you to, to contribute to the discussion as well. Go ahead, Gordon. Yeah, I think this is actually a worthy and important discussion. Uh, you know, what's interesting to me about it is I supported the initial American operation in Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, I thought it was necessary. I thought it was important to do. And I thought it was done in absolutely the right way where the ground forces were basically indigenous. And we support, we supplied air power and intelligence and some on-ground spec ops to support the operation. The, the tragedy started when the mission expanded. Uh, and and there's, two, there's two pieces to that. The mission expanded in part because we abandoned the mission immediately thereafter and sent a lot of those capabilities over to do a, the absolutely foolhardy invasion of Iraq, in my judgment. Uh, the, the net result was the mission expanded and our almost limitless capacity to intervene uh, in, in the service of what we see as wonderful ends of creating democracy and healthy economies and a functioning government uh, took over. And you know that is the American hubris. And then as the Afghanistan papers have made clear, uh, they were, the policymakers were perpetually lying to the American public, to themselves in part and to the American public about how things were going. And anybody right there in print from the uh, Special Inspector General for uh, Afghani Reconstruction was the evidence that things were not going well. And they didn't go well for about 18 years uh, until this final very messy endgame. So one of the things that, that Biden, in fact, a money quote for me and what Biden had to say in his last major talk on this was to say, and I'm quoting, this decision is not just about Afghanistan, it's about ending our era of major military operations to remake other countries, end quote. And I say, Hosanna, hope that message sticks, not persuaded that it will, because it didn't after Vietnam, when we the first time that we uh, whiffed uh, at a fastball uh, by a military intervention and trying to remake a country that went very bad. Uh, we whiffed a second time in Iraq. We've whiffed again in Afghanistan. At some point, you'd think we'd learn. And for all the differences between those three situations, which we can debate forever, they carry that one fundamentally uh, uh, consistent feature of the hubris of thinking we can remake another country and ask the military to do the job. Uh, not possible. Mission impossible. So for me, uh, that was that was the money quote. Uh, and it 
you know, the end game uh, was a sloppy and messy one. Uh, you know, I wrote about the, the strategy piece in a piece that I did for a, uh, a website called The Conversation, which is an inter-university consortium to get faculty members work out into the policy process. It was extremely widely received and republished when it was published there. But people can access that, that, that by going to theconversation.com and putting my name, Gordon Adams, after it, and they'll find that piece. The endgame piece I just did last week for Responsible Statecraft, which is the blog site for the Quincy Institute. And it's, it's basically saying, look, you know, we've done this before and it's always messy. Getting out of a conflict situation where you're losing is always messy. And this had its messy features. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, you know, mistakes were made, and I hope to hell there's a, a really big after action review about what it was that went wrong, but it was always going to be messy. It was never going to be pretty, and it had its unique features of ugliness in this particular extraction. But part of the problem that I'm sure this administration faced, because we faced it, as I say in the piece in 1994, when we had to do Rwanda, Cuba, and Haiti all in the same nine-month stretch in 1994, is it takes lots of planning. It takes lots of interagency work. It takes lots of, of policy-level officials. Uh, the and one of the problems, it's not the only, it's an explanation, not an excuse. The one of the problems that the Biden administration faced was they were stiffed in the transition, so had no information about planning for such contingencies despite a May 1 deadline. They came into office and realized that there was no civilian planning parallel to what is always a very well-organized and usually successful military logistics operation to pull out the forces. And over the past nine months, they're trailing behind almost every administration in the confirmation of uh, conventional agency appointees at places like state and USAID that would have been doing that planning. In 1994, we were already a year in. We had the people in place. We could put 100 people and park them in a room at the, at the Marshall Building at NDU and plan this sucker for Haiti for nine months. They came in with a three and a half month deadline. They extended it to the end of August. And even then it was chaotic, messy, difficult, and in the end only partially successful. But the bottom line here is it's hard to do this stuff. So the caterwauling and media thumping and partisan advantage being taken around this moment to bash uh, you know, the president of the United States is getting in the way of really understanding what happened here and how much of this was probably inevitable. Dove? Well, I agree in part with Gordon. Um, in my book, uh, I wrote about the fact that I wrestled with the issue of nation building. Now, you got to remember, the, the one element that Gordon overlooked was that Clinton was involved in nation building. There was Somalia, there was Bosnia. I opposed both of those. Um, many of us did. And part of the difficulty is, yes, the president has now said we're not going to do it anymore. So did Obama say that. So did George W. Bush say that. We keep saying we ain't going to do it anymore. Uh, I'm afraid we're addicted to it. Uh, and partly because of what Gordon says, there's a degree of hubris there. It doesn't work. What happened with Iraq and Afghanistan, and I did write about that as well uh, in the book, was that basically uh, we totally took our eye off the ball for, with respect to Afghanistan. It's, Afghanistan was actually working pretty well in 2003, 2004. I ought to know I was the civilian coordinator for it. Uh, two million Afghans had come home. Small businesses were starting up. We were focusing much more on the economy than on, on the, the governance per se, Karzai being Karzai. Um, I, my own son was wandering around Kabul looking for business without any military escort or anything like that. Um, and of course, Al-Qaeda and, and uh, the Taliban were nowhere to be seen. But then what happened, virtually within a year of, of uh, our uh, going after the Taliban uh, in 2002 was that we totally took our eye off the ball. I mean, after all, I was comptroller. Why the heck was I the guy to be coordinators on the civilian side for Afghanistan? That was because Doug Fife, who should have been doing it, was totally consumed by Iraq. And it went downhill from there. So that's number one. We're not really good at that. By the way, we also send people that we call civilian affairs officers who have minimal, if any, knowledge of the local culture, of local mores, of, of how things work. And of course, rotations don't help because you're there two years 
you never really build up a relationship. At least the Brits had a colonial office, so they were there for life. We don't do any of that. We shouldn't be leading on this stuff. Um, and there were other problems, too. I wrote about this in the last couple of weeks in The Hill, that we knew about corruption ages ago. And uh, Sarah Chase, who probably knows Afghanistan as well as anybody, because she lived in Kandahar for 10 years, says the Obama administration made a deliberate decision in 2011 to ignore corruption and to focus on nation building, for God's sake, or democracy, whatever term you want to use. And then, so, so we knew they were corrupt for a decade and did nothing about that. And then, of course, our contractors, I was on the contracting commission, our contractors were not really given any specific guidance. And why did the Af Afghan Air Force not work as soon as the contractors pulled out? After 20 years, they couldn't hand anything over. So you see that there are problems on top of problems on top of problems. And with Gordon, I'm, I am in agreement. I don't know that this is going to be the last time. We've got this, this compulsion to try to make everybody to be like us. And a lot of folks just don't want to be. Um, I would uh, point out uh, to our listeners to check out the uh, great piece uh, on foreign policy by Alan Richards, Professor Emeritus from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and Steve Simon, uh, Stephen Simon uh, from uh, MIT's Center for International Studies, uh, writing, Afghanistan was a Ponzi scheme sold to the American public. When a scam falls apart, it collapses uh, fast. There's no disrespect to anybody, but talks a little bit about the hubris going into that. I think you know we all have a lot of respect for Rich Armitage, but Rich Armitage telling Pakistanis history starts now is the sort of thing a hubristic imperial power does uh, and, and ends up uh, going badly. You know, the interesting thing about this is when people say we expect more of a superpower, ultimately superpowers are the ones that do stuff like this. Uh, Michael, let me bring you in at the very end of this. Obviously, the president had a tough uh, week with Democrats and Republicans both pounding away at him. The polling suggests, astonishingly, the president's popularity is at 44 uh, to 51 percent uh, disapproval in overall jobs rating. It's been obviously a very, very difficult, challenging week with a lot of folks uh, throwing uh, fuel on this uh, fire. And yes, Gordon is back. So Gordon actually gets the last word. Talk to us a little bit about how the president is doing up on the Hill uh, and whether the political dynamic uh, is changing and what the buzz on Afghanistan up there is, because ultimately the United States still has a lot of influence. The Taliban, we were working with the Taliban pretty successfully to try to you know, it's a tragedy. 13 Americans died, 170 Afghans died, and another 18 Americans were wounded. But ultimately, you can't lose sight of the fact an enormous number of people were evacuated that would have been facing uncertain futures. Now we're going to work with the Taliban as long as it guarantees American security. Realpolitik says you work with a lot of unsavory people at the end of the day to advance your interests. How is that going up there? And yes, Gordon, you get the last word. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, so, well, look, it's, it's, it's very mixed, right? Um, I think you've, you know, look, you, especially when you look at the House, you, you, you have got a two-year cycle. So lots of people are worried about their own survival and their own re-election in a couple of years. So they've got their finger in the wind. But I think you, know, you see definitely a difference between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to this issue. Um, just as a comparison to the last administration, where many Republicans were reluctant to criticize the president on anything. So <laughs> Democrats have been willing to say that, you know, while they supported uh, our withdrawal from Afghanistan didn't like the way it was handled. So they're trying to, you know, just straddle that fence. And I think some of those arguments are, are, are very valid. And and there's a lot of finger pointing going on. And I think we mentioned last week that, you know, Adam Schiff has been very defensive of the intelligence committee because uh, the intelligence community, because there's been a lot of finger pointing at uh, failures of, of intelligence. And but at the same time, uh, the president admitted um, in one of his addresses that he knew this chaos, you know, would erupt, you know, when, when we when we pulled out. So, um you know, I think this is going to this the news cycle. On this is going to go on for a long time. Obviously, the amendments that were passed in NDAA are going to have a lasting effect as far as the briefings will go. We have the anniversary of 9-11 um, coming up. But it definitely, I think, has weakened the president's political capital on the Hill at a time when his agenda is at risk. You know, he wants to get both these infrastructure packages passed. I think it's more important, in my opinion, to get the bipartisan bill passed because I think that gives a lot of members in difficult uh, districts something to run on. Whereas the uh, the large uh, three point five trillion dollar package 
really could be a career ender uh, for some folks that won districts for Democrats who won districts that were Republican back in 18 uh, and could lose those districts uh, in, in the upcoming 22 election. Now, I, I just want to point out, right, you were for it until you were against it. There were a lot of members uh, who were for the withdrawal and supported uh, President Trump's effort to withdraw from Afghanistan, who suddenly um, purged their websites of positive statements about, about the deal that the last administration made. Uh, very quickly before we go to Gordon, does the Supreme Court's decision uh, on the Texas abortion measure actually change the dynamic and the discussion and change the subject in a way that if you were sitting in the White House cynically, you might think, boy, that was useful. From a political perspective, yes. Uh, from a policy perspective, no. I mean, this is uh, Democrats' worst nightmare, you know, coming true. People have been worried Correct. about Roe v. Wade. The, exactly. Uh, so, yes, I think this helps the Democrats in 22. Uh, this will definitely be an election issue. It's something that the, the base is going to be very passionate about. And frankly, not just the base. I think this you know, Republicans have an appeal problem when it comes to middle of the road voters and soccer moms and and suburban uh, college educated voters. And this is an issue that is going to resonate with them. And it's going to be a problem. And, and uh, but it also adds another thing to Congress's plate because there's pressure now in Congress to legislate on this uh, right. and they can't pass it. They couldn't even pass out of the House, even with uh, Democratic control, because there are some Democratic members who are you know pro-life. There are very few left but they could never get to, to 60 in the Senate. So this is going to be uh, an issue as well, for sure. And, and I think um, more, this will resonate much more than Afghanistan will. And it'll have much more legs over the, between now and the 2022 election than Afghanistan will. Gordon? Let me, let me just jump in on, on a couple of things because I want to, uh, to indicate a little, couple of nuances on this question of nation building uh, and Afghanistan. Uh, the first one is absolutely that Bill Clinton did support nation building exercises in uh, the Balkans, but they were by and large funded and executed by the Europeans who tended to know the territory a little bit better than the United States. Uh, and it is absolutely right that Obama not only ignored the issue of corruption, but decided to increase over a year the troop presence by the United States by 100,000 people when he should have gone in the other direction. And I thought so at the time, working the transition for the Obama administration. Uh, but needless to say, working at OMB, nobody was particularly listening to what I had to say about it. Uh, with respect to Afghanistan, I absolutely agree with Dove that things were going better in 0304. And in my judgment, that's the point of time at which we should have seriously reduced our presence uh, on the military side while there was a capability in militarily and a weakened Taliban that could have reorganized the politics of Afghanistan and they would have done it themselves and had to have done it themselves rather than waiting another you know, 17, 18 years with so much more blood and treasure expended and no opportunity for Afghan politics to reorganize themselves in a similar way. So we missed a huge opportunity when we took our eye off the ball and did not begin to draw down then. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody has uh, a terrific uh, weekend, a great uh, Labor Day, and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. Thanks, Vago. Thanks, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.